Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Hey, y'all. We'll be back on our normal schedule next week, dropping new episodes on Tuesday. But we wanted to share with you an episode we didn't get a chance to run last year, but still really enjoyed. It's Bruce Headlam speaking to singer-songwriter, pianist, 90s alt-rocker, Ben Folds. Folds is best known for the music he put out with the Ben Folds Five in the mid-90s, particularly for the song Brick, which was a bit of a surprise hit in 1998. He was also known for his onstage antics, like smashing a priceless Steinway piano on national TV in Australia that got him dropped from a Steinway endorsement. Folds talks with Bruce about the genesis of these angsty stage antics and also about the making of the song Brick and other anecdotes gleaned from the book he wrote about his life and craft called A Dream About Lightning Bugs. Enjoy this episode. It was taped pre-pandemic, so Bruce and Folds are in the same studio, and we'll see you next week. You mentioned in the book that you are both a hard worker and completely undisciplined. Right. Now, you've written an enormous number of songs. Your last record also had a piano concerto. You've written different kinds of music. What was it like writing a book as opposed to writing songs? Interestingly, I found discipline writing the book that I hadn't found in writing songs. Hmm. And I think it actually came down to something I had read Stephen King said about if you want to write a book, sit down in the morning, shut the door, and write two or 3,000 words. That should get you up to about 2 o'clock, go get lunch and forget about it. And I thought, oh, well, he knows how to write a book. I'll just do that. And I went to my office, 
shut the door and I wrote for three or four hours, like Stephen King said. Now I've never written music that way. So that is discipline that I, I found. Um, but I think it is a distinction. I work hard not because I was taught discipline or I have a good knack for discipline. I'm just simply driven. And I think that's a harder way to do it. I think it's better if you have a Sergeant Rock inside guilting the hell out of you for not getting up early in the morning and doing your sit-ups and your meditation and then going straight into the room writing your morning pages and all that stuff. I think that's a, that's a, a, an enviable thing. But when it comes to music, I'm awful. I have to have the deadline. I have to have people breathing down my neck. There has to be a drama about I'm not going to turn it in on time. And this is the worst thing I've ever written. And you can't make me turn it in on time. And you're going to take this from my gold, cold, dead fingers and all this. I just, you know. But the book, everything I got in before time, I drove the project and I was disciplined. Wow. Have you tried to apply that to music since? Or just it doesn't, just a different thing? doesn't work. I don't know. I mean, it's it's hard to it's hard to turn that around. It's hard to turn you know like uh, I'm not a spring chicken. I've got like my drama habits. I have mm -hmm. to be late with my project and all this <laughs> stuff. It's just the way I seem to roll. I did try. I mean, I put in my calendar. You know, I put little music signs. I drew them all over my calendar for this year. These are the days I'm going to write music because I thought I would learn from my uh, book writing. I've done it. No, that done nothing. No, I'm terrible. Okay. Yeah. So it's, well, it's different. It's not terrible. I'm trying not to say terrible. I find it. I'm, I judge it. <laughs> it's terrible, but thank you. I'll take yeah. that in. Speaking of judging, uh, you know, I remember when you first came out, a lot of people thought, well, you know, he's like a college guy. Yeah. Um, which was, it is never a compliment when it comes to rock music because people somehow think college right. beats rock music out of you. But you were really chaotic. Yeah. Upbringing. Uh, you know, and your family had chaos going back. Your your mother and your grandmother were both left at orphanages for a time. Your grandfather threatened to kill your father at some point. Yeah. Uh, what was it like growing up in that kind of atmosphere? Well, you know, the reason that I put a lot of that stuff in was if I was going to say, I would like to teach people about creativity. So, but I'm not an expert on creativity outside of my own. So it's like, okay, well, the best way to do this is to tell how I did it. But then it's like you almost kind of want to do a little almost ethnographic study of how did I get there. And so I looked back at the momentum uh, that had uh, propelled me into being a person, that, that, that how I was born, what I was born into. And what I see is an incredible firewall that my parents threw up uh, between their abusive upbringings and mine. Incredible. I mean, they say the cycle is, is impossible to break or it's very difficult mm -hmm. to break. My parents show that to be wrong. I mean, and, and they, they had me very young. And, and, and it's the clean slate, it, which is part of the uh, – part of the chaos of my upbringing. So the fact that all that stuff happened and was of interest and all this energy of craziness in my parents' upbringing, and then boom, it comes to m my brother and I are, 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 are born, and they just played it all by ear and, and cut all that off. And I think that, that I felt that. Like I felt the upbringings of my father being held up at knife point and gunpoint and my grandfather killing himself, but I never really met my grandfather, and I wasn't around for those things. But it does by osmosis sink in. And you know the, that we moved every year was, you know, my, my father just probably clean slating it every year trying to survive mm -hmm. you know i mean a lot of people don't survive mentally what he went through and and he did so like amazingly mm -hmm. 
Was it responsible for a bit of your, A, your drive, and B, on the other hand, your lack of discipline? Well, I think my lack of discipline just is is was the trade-off for my parents being so open-minded. So like, what's today going to be? I don't know. There's no schedule. Uh, did you get to school? I already got to school. That's good. Oh, you like that song on the radio? Well, you don't have to go to school until noon. You can listen to that song. You like that song. Yeah, you, I, you told the story. Your, your mother let you stay late because you liked the song on the radio. It's a Paul Simon song called Love Me Like a Rock. I love that song. I was waiting for that to come on since <laughs> 6 in the morning. I woke up early, had my transistor radio on the air. I had requested it at the radio station. They said they were going to play it. 7 o'clock rolled around. They still hadn't played it. 8 o'clock, and then I'm like, they haven't played the song, but they're going to play it after commercial. I'm like, I'm fine. Nice. You don't have to go to school. It's wonderful. It's great, but it's not exactly a disciplined lifestyle. No. But you were very driven from an early age on the piano. Yeah, yeah. And as you describe it in the book, you you would listen to your radio at night. Yeah. And then you would get up and you didn't I don't quite understand. You you said you didn't play by ear, but you somehow fumbled through to figure out the song. So what was that? Well, I didn't really get there. That's the problem is that that's not where I arrived. Like I listened to the radio and I would hear these songs, like a real simple one, that, that Lou Rawls song that goes, you'll never find, dun, 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 dun. Yeah. simple. All that is, is, but I couldn't find it, you know, because you don't know what you're looking for as a kid. Mm -hmm. I never had a vocabulary early on to learn other people's songs. So even though I wanted to, and I mentioned that in the book, that yeah, I'm gonna play all these songs when I wake up, there is actually a a method I believe you should learn to play by ear. It's not something that just, just happens out of thin air. And I've found it very frustrating. That's why I broke a lot of stuff growing up. I threw a lot of fits when I was a kid. I, mm -hmm. I, I threw my punched holes in walls. I broke furniture. I got in trouble constantly for it because I couldn't play something on the piano. I would listen to it and go, oh, I should be able to play that. Well, where do you start? I never knew. Mm -hmm. And so what were you playing in those days? You weren't playing, I would find you're going to miss songs. my loving. That was the song, the rule, uh, Lou Rawls song. That's right. right. Yeah, you're going to miss my, what am I singing? I yeah. love yeah, that yeah. song. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, I, I ended up finding uh, my own songs. You know, I would search for things and try to play. Started off doing a lot of noise, you know. Which I would recommend for kids. I actually think it's really good. It's like throwing your food or putting your hands in food when you're like, you know, 18 months old or something. It's something you should probably do. Um, and then I would, you know, I would start to find things that I could that I, I I could play and I made them up. Like I remember one that went. That's really. It was based around a little theme like that. So. child um and i i mean i made that up when i was about eight or nine mm -hmm. and it's got interesting chords in it and it's cool but i wasn't finding i wasn't able to find you know the elton john song i might want to find to this day i, I can play one of his songs on the pianos because i learned it to play with him and i had to really work at it i don't learn other people's stuff very well mm -hmm. i found my own stuff so, and I found so it's like years later, Elton John taught you how to play one of his songs? Um, no, I learned it myself. I was just like, we're, he's like, let's play Tiny Dancer together. And uh, so uh, I learned it. I learned a couple other of his songs, actually, come to think of it, because I did a couple of gigs with him. But they were, I always really had to put the time into it. Uh, you know, like someone like, um, 
Rufus Wainwright's just really, really confident about his singing. You know, he's such a great singer. I remember we both did a thing with Elton on on in a Broadway uh, theater where we were playing um, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road in its entirety, and, and Jake from Scissor Sisters, and there's a couple other things. It was a really neat little show. And I was assigned two of his songs, and I worked on it for two days, all day long in the hotel. And then when I got there, I realized that all, all Rufus was doing was just reading off a teleprompter. And he didn't even really know the song. Rufus didn't know the song uh, Goodbye Yellowbrook Road. He just kind of didn't know it. He was really? just reading the words, and his melody was coming out as he just kind of thought he should do it. And I remember thinking, God, I worked so hard to try to find that. And he's killing it, but he's just doing his own thing. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, even though I, I seem cavalier as a musician, when there's something I need to do, I, I, I really try hard to find it. And I work hard to find it, you know? Right. This is the hard worker. The hard the worker. Hard worker not necessarily part. disciplined. If I had been disciplined, I would have learned how to actually learn. But I didn't learn how to learn. I have to like sit down and figure that out. You were also a drummer when you were young. Yeah. Uh, and you say at some point in the book that you, you sort of play the piano like a drummer. Yes. Can you, can you show me what you mean by that? Yeah. Well, there's two things that are really lucky about the way um, uh, my piano playing developed because I was, I did have a lot of lessons and uh, I did study percussion. So my percussion chops pretty real. My piano stuff is really spotty. Think why when I start to talk about my development on the piano, I really kind of go into outer space. I can't really explain it. You know, like we've been talking about, it, I'd say I'm the least articulate about that. If I'm if I'm explaining uh, percussion, drums, oh yeah, I can do that. Uh, what what I play and what's common from my era as as a battery percussionist is called left hand lead, and this left hand lead because people marched. So uh, all of the uh, the what they call the rudiments of of percussion, uh, called funny things like rattamacues and paradiddles, I don't know if you've right. heard all sure, this stuff, yeah. flamadiddles and all that stuff, is all military. and uh, But it's actually really good for putting you through the paces. But it's a left-hand lead when most people aren't left-handed. That's because you march left, right, left, right, and that's why we do that. So I was learning percussion, totally left-hand lead, like I was supposed to, which has really great benefit for the piano. For, for, for instance, you know, just going left to right, it's like left, left, right. Just to play rock and roll music, I'm not grounded at the top of the piano. It's always going to happen at the bottom first. And that might seem small, but, you know, to me, to hear my groove on the piano, uh, well, it's much better than most piano players just because even if they were drummers, they might be more right-handed, but because I was trained that way. So on, on, on the piano, for instance, if you're, if you're a, a common right-handed drummer, you're working against the left-handed lead method, which means a lot of drum set players actually aren't, uh, they're right-handed, they're not exactly uh, uh, trained or skilled at uh, at sort of stick control. Like most professional drummers I see, even really great ones, if you have them do a buzz roll, it's really sketchy. It's not that good. Mine was kind of perfect after the first year of, 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 of playing because I was really serious about it. Anyway, so so it, when, when, they, when they go to play a, a ride pattern, okay, uh, this is all going to get it out. No, it's not. <laughs> when you could, like, this is the stuff we love. Really? Okay. If you're podcast. playing a ride pattern, you're a right-handed drummer. You know that your right hand is going on the cymbal or the hi-hat is going ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta. And then your left hand is on the snare drum going ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta. 
and you're, let's see, it's your uh, right foot is playing the bass drum. So you're leading with your right foot, right, left, right, left, right, snare, kick, snare, right, left. You're not going left, right, left, right. I enjoyed already going left, right, left, right, because I had that old school stuff in my training, which was kind of unusual for a set drummer. Then when you translate that to piano, then my left hand is the ride cymbal, right? So when I play a left-handed kit, which is what I do, uh, I'm a left-handed drummer, uh, my left hand is riding, which is very unusual. But for a piano player, it's a dream, because I'm going with my left hand, and I'm completely grounded that way. And if I wanted to go I can, I can play syncopated because I always have a root in my right hand hitting the downbeat. And uh, most piano players are viewing this as a lot of different events. Like they're, they're, they're yeah, viewing it. Yeah, that seems it. really complicated. That's one event to me. Just land on my left foot and I'm fine. Paradiddles. That's, that's easy for me because uh, I've played left-hand lead, left-hand drum set, and when I apply that to piano with my piano concerto, the hardest things to do in it are just simply drummer things, left-right rhythm things. You know, a piano player might find the piece difficult sometimes only because of the left-right, left-right stuff. Um, for a piano player, they would expect more beautiful runs. Well, I don't really have an articulate beautiful run. I'm a percussive piano player. So my piano concerto starts with this. And, that, and all that is, is just playing drums. I'm just going. And it doesn't take much for me, but if I had to go. It's not a good scale. I'm not very good at that. Mm -hmm. Wow. Uh, now, when you listen to other players, can you hear, are there other left-handed piano players you, you can hear and see? There are some piano players that are just more rooted in a drum set, and they sound like that to me. Two that come hit me from the uh, top of the head are Stevie Wonder. When he mm. plays drums and he plays piano, that sounds very similar to me. Oh, interesting. And, he's, and, and, and I don't think he probably plays left-handed, but I suppose, and from what I've heard, I've never seen him play drums, uh, that he's all over the shop because he can't see what he's doing. Um, so he, I don't think he plays like a left or a right-handed drummer. Mm -hmm. uh, so the left-handed thing wouldn't come in, but the drum set thing, definitely. Like you hear him play piano, that sounds like a drum set. And I don't know if Billy Preston played drums or not, but, but he had a, a, a relentless mean groove at the keyboard the kind that you don't hear many players these days have and and I, and I hate to you know i'm a different style and everything and this is gonna sound very cocky but i would place myself in that kind of uh, mm -hmm. uh in in that small group of keyboard players that can actually play in time if i were to talk to to people who played with you what would they say about your sense of timing um, well, everyone's so damn opinionated. They think their time is perfect. So no one's going to completely agree with me. But I think most musicians would say I have good time mm -hmm. um, as, a, as a piano player. I probably lean forward a little bit. So you're, you're on top of the beat. I think I'm a little bit on top of the beat. Mm -hmm. But it depends on the song. I mean, I, I, I play solo piano so much, I'm allowed to 
play with the time. And I know that sometimes I choose to really pull it back. There's a song called Still Fighting It. I get to the chorus and it's like, uh, it's, it's been about this tempo. Everybody. Oh, I said it's gone through this, sorry. It's gone through that. Establish that and get to the chorus and go. I'm just pulling back, especially on the twos and fours. That's just downright weird. Uh, that that when I played all the instruments on the record and I, and I had a very concerned producer. It's like you're dragging so bad. So we re reprogrammed, you know, the 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 grid to slow it down like five clicks. So it had to be programmed into the computer that I insisted that the computer follow me and slow down. I like a time map like that. I think it's smart. We'll be right back with more from Ben Folds. We're back with Bruce Headlam's conversation with Ben Folds. So I want to switch a little bit and talk about your lyrics. We haven't exhausted rhythm we, yet. We have not exhausted rhythm. Uh, and we'll come back to it, but it's interesting. You're, we've we've talked a lot to a lot of uh, singer songwriters on this show who hate the kind of label, the confessional singer songwriter. Um, no one's hung that on you, but you've written some incredibly deeply personal lyrics. Yeah. I think maybe part of the reason that hasn't been hung on me is I don't even think until recently the the word songwriter's been hung on me a lot. I think that I started off by treating the songs with almost disrespect, that my band distorted over them, we played too fast, we covered things up, we overarranged, kind of because that was exciting to us. Songs that would have been, if they were a Barry Manilow song or an Elton John song, we were very 70s kind of, um, those songs would have been treated with such respect, space for the vocal, you know, proper proper production treatment. But we just stomped through them because that was the punk rock era. And, and in a way, we were maybe ashamed of the uh, of the um, overthinking of the songs. As a result, kind of, I feel like in my career, people didn't really, my fans did, but in general, I never really saw myself mentioned that often kind of as a songwriter first. Mm -hmm. Usually it was about the showmanship or my piano playing or the band uh, the fact that we didn't have a guitar, and then there was, you know, uh, a brick is brick is a hit maybe about the fact that it was about an abortion, but not about the writing of it. Then you see someone I don't know, like like a homie of mine, like Ryan Adams, always talking about his songwriting, or Jeff Tweedy, always talking about their songwriting. So I don't really, I I, th I think maybe some of it is because I I was so cavalier about it that no matter what kind of song I wrote, that wasn't front and center of what people talked about. So that that does make a difference, I think, in perception. Also, I, I, my instinct was that if you're writing a song, and this is where I do a lot of thinking, if you're writing a song that is against someone, like you did this and you did that, it's a real finger-pointy song, we all, way too often, we demonize the person we're pointing the finger at. There are no redeeming qualities that person. And I love Fiona Apple, but like listen to a lot of her songs. I mean, the person she's singing about, half the time, this may, be, may as well be Satan. I have a feeling if I met the guy, I could have a beer with him and actually find redeeming qualities. So although I think she's amazing at writing that, 
I never personally wanted to do that. I think that 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 you will get looked at more as a confessional singer songwriter if you make a cartoon out of yourself. Mm-hmm. I should say in the book you explained people know the song Brick that it really was it was based on a yes a real time in your life. Um, your girlfriend in senior year high school yep. was pregnant. Yeah, um, you decided to have an abortion. Yep. It was a very troubling time for uh, you. It was awful, awful. I didn't realize the degree to which a lot of the writing was taken from real life. But I don't know how you came up with it musically. Yeah, that's an interesting one. It goes against, and that's why I say I don't know what the hell I'm talking about when I try to describe myself. It's the opposite of what I've been saying. Hmm. I mean, Brick is is exactly what happened in high school with a rhyme to it. So Mm -hmm. I just did the opposite with that. But as I say, the couple times I've, I've been very sort of literal and more confessional, they have been successful. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a, a song like Brick was about sitting down. My, my, my friend, the drummer, Darren Jesse, had the chorus, which is, She's a brick and I'm drowning. He had that, and he was like, I think that's a good chorus. What do you think? I was like, well, I think it's great. What does it mean? He goes, I have no idea. Huh, okay. And I oh, literally- He had the lyrics as well. He had the lyrics as oh. well. It was just, she's a brick and I'm drowning slowly off the coast, headed nowhere. Mm-hmm. That was four short lines. That's the whole song that he had written, or that's the whole contribution. Happens to be the chorus, happens to have made it a hit. Huge contribution. But then I thought, well, what does this make me feel like? I felt like that, you know, slowing down a little bit, and then, you know, his. this occurred to me and then I just felt like telling the story of what happened in high school it just all came to me really really fast like the story of what happened I almost considered it an experiment I think uh, to, to, to write boneheadedly about what happened but I didn't see any other way to do that song and I had cover now because I had this ambiguous chorus it's funny that a lot of times I'll have like suddenly I'll see my Twitter blow up and it'll be all these people who have, like, maybe the the the, the topic of the day is abortion. And uh, they're pretty critical of me. It's pr- they're pretty mean, actually. Um, people I don't know saying, God, this guy made a million bucks singing about his girlfriend's abortion he made her do. And he hates her guts. And he's sending her out to the ocean and all this stuff. And they've read all this stuff into the lyrics. And I think about the actual circumstances and and how much care there was between the two of us and what a decision that was and how not black and white the world is. And I see this come through, but often the, what, what seems to bother them the most is the chorus. Well, Darren wrote the chorus in a vacuum and I just took the feeling of it and went with it. It's actually probably a pretty seamful, bad method of throwing a song together. It's very haphazard. I just took that chorus, which I don't still even understand, but it made me feel something. So I went with that. As a songwriter sometimes where, you know, they say, you know, you don't learn how to write a book. You learn how to write the book you're on. So on that song, I'm like, how do you write a song? Well, I don't know. This makes me feel this and I'll just go with it. It was on the record before I could even really protest the idea that I had written something so personal. I just need another song for the record. And I felt that out of that. And there you go. Luckily, I feel like the song lyrics that are in the verse are so true to what happened that I feel like I don't feel like I'm going to be sent to some 
some some kind of you know social movement hell or anything for that song <laughs> at this point just simply because i was just telling the truth and i have i feel like at the end of the day that 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 does weigh something uh you have a great quote which i want to read uh there's many many great parts to this book and i encourage everybody to read it i'm going to read uh just a couple of lines um, which i think to me really jumped out from time to time we all catch a split second glance of a stranger in a storefront window before realizing it's our own reflection. A songwriter's job is to see that guy, not the one posing straight on in the bathroom mirror. I feel like a song has to have moments that snuck up on you. The way that I described it, that's the way I see it. Because you'll see someone in, in, in a storefront, you will think, you'll think something about them. You might think, God, what's that guy wearing? Or, hey, there's a handsome motherfucker there. You'll think something. But you're not placing your own self-awareness onto it. And it's so rare. We hear our voices inside our own heads. We never get to get out of that. But a songwriter really needs to have a moment of finding that. Mm -hmm. Hook or crook, however you can find it. And it's probably brief. And you probably have to remember that. Like To me, if it feels like sometimes it's in a chill hair standing up that I get while building a song and it never comes back. It's not like that line does it to me anymore, but I have to remember that happened, you know, because as you start to, to craft a song, especially when you craft them to the extent that I do, um, you have to hang on to that little innocent moment that you weren't self-aware that you didn't know that was you because now you're putting the microscope on it. So watch those edits, you know, watch the ones where you're trying to make yourself look better or the ones where you're, you know, aiming your head into the mirror just perfect so you get that perfect angle on your chin. Like, you don't, don't do that. Like, you can't do that in a song um, and, and have it survive with honesty. Can you think of example songs that where you think you've had that moment, you were able to hang on to it? I think every song that I've written has, has them. That's why, I, I, that's why they've survived. Um, and it's not like you can say it's one line. It's something that it's a, it's like an environment that is created by the song where that, that it, it seeps into the rest of the song. It's in its attitude. It's in the way the chords move. You may decide on a, on a lilt or something that you don't know why you're doing that. Like it's, it's a cadence. I wish I could say, I mean, sometimes they can be lines. There's a line that lines can surprise you with what was there that you didn't know. And you can discover them later. Um, very simple one was the song Phone in a Pool, which I use a lot in the book. It's not really that well-known song of mine. It's in the later part of my catalog, which, um, you know, records sell fewer and fewer uh, each time. So probably fewer people know this song. But it's a moment uh, where I said, what, what's, what's been good for the music hasn't always been so good for the life. It kind of rhymed, it kind of fit seemed right, gave me the little chill, didn't think about it. When I was writing the book, it kept coming up. I could have used that like every other every other uh, uh, chapter pretty easily. Can you can you just play those lines from uh, Phone in the Pool? Yeah. Which, it's by so, the way, it was based on you actually throwing your phone in a pool. That's right. Yeah. I mean, nothing nothing to the experience of the song really, the, what, what, uh, what uh, inspired the song is really in there and would have been probably a good journal entry, you know, I, I, I was I had so many 
competing phone calls. I was in the middle of one of those terrible texting shit shows with three parties. And I just walked off stage. I mean, I felt like, you know, I'm the least important person at this moment in this texting when I'm getting my ass kicked by three. But I mean, I have some respect. I just got off of work. Like, I just kind of felt like, ah, sick of this. I hate phones. And I was walking by uh, uh, the pool at the Sunset Marquee in in uh, uh, in uh, Los Angeles. And I just reflexively, no one else was there. I thought, I threw it in the pool and it went blah, 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 down to the bottom. And then this voice comes out of the shadows. Ben, is that you? Like, looked over and it was Kesha. And she was pulling off a hoodie. She'd just been chased by paparazzi and came through the bush. <laughs> so she goes, what did you just do? And I was like, oh, I threw my phone in the pool. She said, why did you do that? I was like, I don't know. I was sick of it. And she's like, don't do that. And she jumped in with all her clothes on, and she went down to the bottom of the pool and got my phone. She's like, you know, you should put this in rice. That's, you know, mine fell on the toilet, and I looked on the internet. You put it in rice, and, and then don't turn it on until it's dry, and it'll fix the phone. That's where the song came from. Nothing about that <laughs> in the actual song. Um, because, of course, it's just like, uh, I've thrown my phone in a pool. So that's the chorus of it. Uh, let's see, what's what's been good for the music hasn't always been so good for the life. And I guess I was kind of like, you know, throwing a phone in the pool that has consequences. You know, like now I have to go down to Verizon or wherever and, and stand in line with people and get a phone. It costs money. Someone built the phone. People can't get in touch with me anymore. You know, like 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 in real life, I was thinking, you know, being a kamikaze in your music, what's good for the music? Yeah, sure, but you don't just walk by the pool and throw your phone in. That's not what grown-ups do. So that's what I meant by the line. Well, before you threw the phone in the pool, long before, uh, you used to throw your piano stool yeah. at your piano. You Now you're sitting at a beautiful Yamaha. I think it's a seven-foot. Yeah. Um, you, we sh I should mention you used to have a deal with Steinway. I did, yeah. Until you, <laughs> you broke one of their pianos throwing your... Your yeah, well, stool I didn't. I I, uh, I I threw a stool as showbiz on a television show. Um, it was our debut on television in Australia. And um, it very much, very much upset the host of the show, um, whose piano it was. <laughs> <laughs> Go figure. Uh, we thought it was a rental. We were always prepared to pay if I messed something mm -hmm. up, but I, I really didn't break many pianos. I, I, I told about the two times I did break pianos. I felt horrible. Right. One was a, uh, his grandmother's family heirloom Steinway from the eight, 19th century, and, and I was a jerk, and I shouldn't have done mm -hmm. I didn't think. You had a lot of – you acted out a lot on stage. Totally. For a guy who's a piano player. Totally. A lot of flipping off the audience, yeah. a lot of Pull my pants down, flip off the audience. I, I play. I remember playing a show. We just started promoting Brick, and we were playing a pretty big sold-out show in Princeton, and this was getting exciting. And I started playing Brick, and some people were talking, so I could play that with one hand, play with one hand, and I sang the song and just with my middle finger in the air while I, while I did it. It's crazy, silly stuff like that. I remember playing the introduction to brick one time for uh, maybe 20 minutes till they cut the power off. I didn't mm -hmm. even start the song. I just did the introduction. I don't know why. Where I just does, Where does all that come from? In I just, you know, some of probably my, 
let's say that I would say that that was the rest of the steam control of my parent. If I had to say my parents' upbringing, you know, like that was my angry. You know, I mean, I mean it's not that unusual for young men to be angry. I don't guess angry young man. Like it's a mm -hmm. cliche. That was me. Yeah. You know, and that was, I was so fortunate to be able to, to, I took it out in two ways, comically by acting like a complete clown and doing things that were totally self-destructive. Remember doing a big interview on MTV where you can't see this over the radio or over podcasts, but I stuck the bottom of my jaw out and I, I, wouldn't, I don't know why I did that. I couldn't tell you. I just, I guess I didn't want to be on MTV that day or I thought it was funny or there was something self-destructive about it that kind of. It's like pushing on a sore tooth, like he has a sore tooth and you just feel like out of curiosity you'll press on it. Um, I think that makes for an attractive rock star, especially if you're playing piano. I mean, I can see the marketability in it too. Everyone likes the, you know, we like that. And then I think at the point that those things snowball, you know, like if you start into a temper and then it just takes over, it needs to stop. Mm -hmm. It needed to stop. Was there life. a point you thought, yeah, this needs to stop? Yes. I realized that... Um, Many things about my life and my career weren't going my way. And I found myself in, in circumstances which were much more grown up. You know, like I really became concerned about uh, music education for kids. Like, wow, what, I, I gained so much for having music in my class. Can I give back a little bit? Well, the more you do that, it's just kind of like not nice for me to walk on stage at the Kennedy Center and talk about music therapy, curate a night of symphonic music, and then go to the rock club next door and smash a bunch of shit, flip off the audience, and cuss all night. I just doesn't seem like the same person. I felt like I needed to grow up. I'm not precious about it. I'm, I'm quite happy to do any of that stuff. I thought it was funny. But it can become, it's like a gag reflex. It's like once you start gagging, you know, like you need to kind of stop yourself. We'll be back with Ben Folds after the break. We're back with the rest of Bruce's conversation with Ben Folds. There's another theme in your book, which is about being cool. You never felt cool. Right. And I think you always wrestled with what was cool, what mm. wasn't cool, should we be cool? Mm. I think you really? mentioned you mentioned uh, some of your early albums, you really almost played over the songs because you wanted a kind of- Wanted to be cool. You wanted a punk rock attitude, yeah. even though you were doing these kind of songs. And then incredibly, the lessons kind of crystallized by William Shatner. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. Can you just tell a little bit of that story? Because it's a great yeah. story. So in the studio, it was Shatner and me and Joe Jackson for a lot of it. We're talking about Joe Jackson, the British singer. Joe not Jackson, the, the British singer. Not, not Michael's father. Right. That's correct. Right. Okay. Yeah. I didn't get anything from that guy. <laughs> um, I won't even make a joke there. Um, I didn't listen to a word Joe said. You know, I wasn't allowing myself to have a mentor. But here's another guy, you know, William Shatner. Well, he's not a musician, so it's not a threat. He's in a he's in a, a an industry where it's okay to be older as an actor. So maybe I was more open for whatever reason. He told me something I needed to hear, which he said, "Benny, what is cool?" And I was like, "What do you mean?" He goes, "You have said the word cool all day long." Like he just like was pounding me about this cool thing, and I was like, "Well, why we up. should explain." You were producing his record. Oh, yeah, point. yeah. Let's back up. I was producing William Shatner's record and writing a lot of the music for it and bringing the songs of his life to, to music. Um, I think it's a great record. I say in the book, it's one of my proudest moments. You don't get the chance to make a record that's never been made. That record was never made before or after, beautiful record. And that's because of, 
uh, uh, that's because of Shatner's um, willingness to be vulnerable and willingness to be for real and not worry about what was cool and what was not. You know, if someone said, uh, was that take good? I said, yeah, cool. You want to go to dinner? Cool. Uh, I think that vocal was cooler than the other. Uh, would it be cool if we did this? And he's like, he, he, he's like, there's a lot of words in the English language, Benny. He goes, you don't have to use that one for your, or what's your, what's your hang up with it? What is cool? I was like, you know, cool is this or cool is that. And he goes, no, 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 no. I need you to define the word that is so, so, uh, such a wide net that it can mean everything that you made it mean today. Can you do that? Um, no, I can't. He goes, well, think about using other words then and think about what your hang up with that word is. Why are you so hung up with that word? And I thought about it. I was like, well, I didn't realize that I was, but I guess I am. But then I started noticing my, my, my peers were all the same. They're saying cool all day long too. I started to think that cool itself probably damn near ruined music in my era. People were so much more concerned with being cool than they were, you know, like good music sometimes that, you know, they often made music, good music despite it. No one talks about how incredibly, um, I would say, I'm trying to choose a better word than cool, because honestly, I just about said cool. How incredibly cool. Uh, Kurt Cobain's chords were. They are so interesting. His voice leading is very interesting. Well, no one ever talked about that. You know, he did the ultimate cool thing you could do in the 90s, which is he killed himself. What cooler is he? He put his money where his mouth was. We were also fucking miserable in the, in the 90s, and he, like, did it. I think it's terrible. It's a terrible thing to celebrate the man for, to, to celebrate him for. The, you know, I remember talking to Elliot Smith, and he was horrified that people were celebrating the, the uh, uh, depressive part of his songs. He didn't seem as depressive. He was offended by that. It's like, these are songs that are getting me through. There's positivity in them. I'm going somewhere. I've written this song. It's a beautiful song. Why is that depressing? I hate it when people call my songs depressing. Because that was his take on it one day. And so I think we were so caught up with this being cool that it, 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 it did get in the way sometimes of just judging something as music. But you know, my, my use of the word cool in songs, probably a little more interesting. Because I think what I realized was what I didn't feel cool. But then I realized no one does. No one feels like the cool one. Maybe one motherfucker does, but mostly, mostly people don't feel like they're the cool one, right? So if you write a song where you admit, like the song Underground, which starts one of the first songs in my career, which goes, I was never cool in school. I'm sure you don't remember me. It's a little bit of a, also a nod to um, Jesus Christ Superstar, which is quoting a musical in the 90s. Really? Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's uncool. <laughs> what, what, what was the part of Jesus Christ Superstar you're quoting? Oh. Oh, Caiaphas, we have a problem here. Mm. Yeah. Okay, don't, don't get me started because I think I can sing the whole Pharisee scene in the original voices. So don't get me going. Awesome. See, but this is that's where it's from. And then it breaks into the, what is it? What? What's Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth? Miracle wonder and hero fools. Yeah, uh, that's riots, no armies, yeah. the fighting, no slogans. Totally. One thing I'll say for him: Jesus, Jesus is cool. All right, we're <laughs> we got that. that. Now part. we truly bonded yeah, yeah. because <laughs> I love that album. But that's Oh Caiaphas, we have a problem here. Yeah, <laughs> I was never cool in school. I'm sure you don't remember me. That was where I was coming from. The reason that song did so well, especially in places like, you know, in the UK where it charted in the top 40 or the top 10 or something like that as a radio hit, um, is because no one felt cool. 
that was my discovery. You know, like all the rock stars before my era came along, most of them were really, really cool. Like they just seemed like the person you wanted to be, but you weren't that person. So there needed to be some balance. Who is the who is the me up there on the stage that that can say that they're not cool and struggle with it publicly, with what they're going to wear, not feel like they know what to say at the party, feel like they're not invited to the party, they're not cool. Those were big themes in the in the Ben Folds Five records. Mm-hmm. And then we played piano, live, living room furniture. Piano's living room furniture. It's not a rock instrument. It's been a rock instrument one or two times. The guys had to light it on fire to prove that they were cool. I'd throw piano stools at it to prove that I was cool. You've actually now had a long career. Did you always know it was going to work? You went through a lot of jobs. Yeah. Uh, you worked in a grocery store. So did I. So I right particularly watched that part. Uh, I didn't work at a Hardee's. Um, but you did a lot of stuff. You played. You, you were a solo polka band in a German yeah. restaurant. You did a lot of stuff. Did you know through all that that your songs were going to one day succeed? I think I, I did on some level. Um, I was terminally frustrated and insulted by the universe that most of my 20s went by, the radio played nonstop through the decade and not a note of my music came out of it. I thought people were idiots for not putting my music there. That was my young man, you know, cockiness about it. And so I became pretty pretty bitter. I mean, I was that guy. I was like, you know, working these jobs, like, you know, waiting tables or something or playing like a polka band, like you said, and feeling like, you know, I deserved way more and my songs are the best songs ever written. And I thought all that stuff. What happened when it happened then? Um, you know, I felt like, yeah, uh, I probably, you know, probably need to be here. That's I feel more like myself now. I, I felt like I needed to have a voice at the table, as it were, or whatever it is that they say. And, and we need to be on the same page or I need to come on board, whatever pirate ship business language. It, uh, I need to be at the party. <laughs> um, but once I was, I found, and I think I mentioned this briefly in the uh, in the book, is I found that it, it, it's it's not satisfying ever because you become popular like you think that you should be which is I remember sitting with a hero of mine from the Archers of Loaf. Did you know that band? They were a punk band from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. They probably sold about 40,000 records. I think Kurt Cobain was a big fan of of them back in the day, and they lived in my neighborhood, you know, and I was sitting in the van with Eric, who was the main guy. I was like, how many records do you sell? Because I had never even made a record before. He goes, we sold 40,000 records. I was like, Jesus, 40,000 records, that's huge. I can't imagine doing that. Of course, when we were selling 70,000 records a week in a couple of years, then that wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. I thought, oh man, that's not, that's not enough because you can see this. These guys, they got a, they got a commercial with that, uh, the Verve song. They got a Nike commercial. Damn, we needed a Nike commercial. They just creamed us. Now they're selling 200,000 records a week and we're selling 70. And my song is just as good as theirs. So you go through that crap and you, you, know, you have to. Uh, best to admit it, best to admit that your ego was duped and you should get out of the business of that. Uh, so I try, try not to really worry about it as much anymore. You're going to sometimes. It's a business that is, uh, your life is affected by approval. You know, if people approve and they give me money or they applaud, my life is better. Uh, and I'm supposed to not read what is written about me or I'm supposed to not notice what the sales are on something. It's hard to do. 
Uh, I think you can decouple them, but I think it's best to admit instead of being so cool and saying, oh, I don't pay attention to my reviews. I don't care what anybody thinks. It's like, boy, you need to go to some therapy. You do care what people think, seriously, but you have to admit that first. I do want to ask you about one more thing, yeah. speaking of being cocky, which is you've done this for years in concerts. You've even done it with orchestras, and I'm encouraged everybody to go to YouTube and watch this. Uh, you call it RTB. Yes. Which is... Rock this bitch. You compose something on the spot. Yeah. Is it is it from audience members? How do you... Uh, it can come in different forms. Um, basically, the, the history of it is it was a... We were making a live piano, solo piano record. It's one of my favorites. I think it's... I don't know why I haven't done more of that. But... Um, an audience guy in the audience yelled, rock this bitch. I think he meant he wanted me to play louder and faster. Maybe I was playing too slow. <laughs> played too many ballads. <laughs> the kid wanted to rock. And I was like, well, I don't, um, I don't know that one. Um, let me see if I can make one up. And so I made up a song, and it ended up on the live record called Rock This Bitch. I was, that was freestyled completely. And it was kind of the revelation was is it held up with other stuff on the record disturbingly well. And um, people asked for it every night then, because then it became a thing. They say, rock this bitch, and I would have to make up a new one, and a new one, and a new one, and a new one. All of them, I think, are probably different. They may overlap in some way, not on purpose. The idea is that when someone says, rock this bitch, then I have to do it. Um, I start making up a song. I've learned so much about songwriting that way, and I tried to impart some of that the best I could. It's very difficult to articulate what I learned about songwriting. But one of the things I've learned is that a song is so wonderful if it sounds as though the singer and the audience are all discovering it together. It doesn't sound like it was there before. It sounds like it's coming out of the earth, which is a very Beethoven idea, you know, that 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 it is there already. And it's just, it's, you're a font and it's coming out. Um, when we cut and paste form, the first verse is, let's say, is eight bars and has a particular cadence. If we cut and paste that idea across the next two verses, that's normal. That's a normal form. When you are RTBing, if you're freestyling a song, you can't really remember exactly what you did in the first verse. And you try to approximate it, but you're a new person and you're discovering a new thing. So you're, it's a new take on that verse. And so it is unfolding in a way that songs normally don't unfold and i find it very effective and i learned a lot from that all and, and because you know a song uh, really could be seen if it's a three and a half minute song could be seen to have only taken three and a half minutes to actually invent the rest of it was all an editing process stuff that you didn't use and mm -hmm. thinking about it and stuff but the actual song is three and a half minutes and it should sound like a discovery and when you teach you say it's a very effective thing to teach to very make effective. people do very effective because one, it keeps you from being precious. Also, you want the other thing you learn about it is that, you know, like life, it's hills and valleys. It's not all like up, 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 like like an American musical. It's like it doesn't all have to like be better, 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 better. It can be like, oops, snore, amazing, snore. That's life. It works that way. Or mistakes. You make a mistake while you're writing a song. It's like, I really wish I hadn't gone here. How are you going to get out of this in real time is actually of interest to the audience. 
it's also energy that 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 is is compelling in the song. I learned a lot. I think the songwriters ought to have to freestyle a song every night. I really do. I think they didn't, they don't think they can do it, but something comes out. Something will always come out. And when you find yourself in a lull, like I say in the book, the beauty of this exercise is you have to write yourself out of it. We edit those things out when we write a song and we're crafting a song. And there's nothing really wrong with that. It's just that when you're more in control about with of that, you want it all to be all killer, no filler. But that's not really what a good song is. You know, you ask someone like, uh, what's what's two or three songs that you love? We're gonna listen to them tonight. Have a beer, listen to some great songs. And then you're listening to them, and the guy's going, I love this song. I love this song too. Why do you like it? I like it because of, well, wait a minute. Oh, there it was. What? They'll run it back. It was just a little moment sometimes. And it was the getting there. They think it's the whole song that they liked. But it's like, what do you like about those words? It's like, well, actually, I don't like the verse verse. I just like that part where he says this. I like this thing. It's like, well, those first words that he didn't care for got you there. And 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 I think it's important not to write everyone like they have to be a punchline, not to write everyone so they have to mean anything. They have to be real and they have to be getting you to the next moment. And those moments in life where it's like, if you had a moment in your day, you had a good day. That's the way it should be in a song. But you can't have the moment in a vacuum. You have to get to the moment. Mm -hmm. And so when you learn freestyling a song is all these things that you just don't put your mind to when you're really thinking about proper songwriting. And, and it has, I don't know if it's improved my songwriting, but I've learned a lot by it. Okay. Easy. So before you go, yes. can I ask one more favor? Sure. Can you rock this bitch? <laughs> oh, I guess so. I mean, the first thing is just something comes out and you don't know where it's going. I didn't think that I would have to write a song in a podcast that's okay oh, see there's a mistake so I'll go with it five chord I didn't know I'd have to sing and now my voice is crusty I just woke up It's a day off There are no days off When you're rocking this bitch In a podcast Rocking this bitch with Bruce I am rocking this bitch They're gonna edit out the stupid shit And make me sound like I'm smart Rock this bitch it's a minor chord. We don't know what's going to go from there. Fabulous. Yeah, thank you. You rocked it. Thank you so much. Thanks, it's been wonderful. Cheers. Cheers. All cheers, right. Cheers. Thanks to Ben Folds for sharing some incredible insights into his life and work. You can hear all of our favorite Ben Folds songs on a playlist at brokenrecordpodcast.com. And be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast. There you can find extended cuts of our new and old episodes. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Martin Gonzalez, Eric Sandler, and our new intern, Jennifer Sanchez, and is executive produced by Mia LaBelle. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. And if you like Broken Record, please remember to share, rate, and review our show on your podcast. 
Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Peace. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.